Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation, our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. And remind you that you can send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at Heritage.org. For those in-house, we do appreciate checking that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off as a courtesy. And, of course, we will post the program on the Heritage homepage following today's presentation. Leading our discussion is David Burton, Senior Fellow for Economic Policy in our Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Prior to joining us here, he served as General Counsel at the National Small Business Association. He's also been Chief Financial Officer and General Counsel of the Alliance for Retirement Prosperity and was a partner in the Argus Group. He has also held numerous posts in finance and tax. Please join me in welcoming David Burton. David? Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Uh, our event today is entitled, Should the Expired Tax Provisions Be Given a New Lease on Life? There are currently 26 expired tax provisions that are being considered for renewal by the Ways and Means Committee. The Joint Committee on Taxation estimates that these provisions would reduce federal revenues by approximately $93 billion over a 10-year period. And even in Washington, that's real money. Uh, tax preferences distort the economy by picking winners and losers. They alter the relative return or cost of capital of different investments and induce taxpayers to make suboptimal economic decisions that they would not have made in the absence of the tax preference. They make the economy less efficient so that a given amount of input produces less output. In the terms of uh, economics jargon, they reduce the production possibility frontier. In plain English, they reduce the incomes of the American people. There are 13 expired energy tax provisions that the committee is considering. They are all unwarranted tax preferences. The only possible economic justification for these provisions is that they're designed to address an ex uh, a negative externality. A tax subsidy for politically favored interests with strong lobbies uh, wouldn't be my first choice on the list of efficacious means of addressing uh, a negative externality. To achieve the desired effect, the uh, tax would have to be carefully calibrated to internalize the cost of the externality. None of these tax preferences are designed like that, uh, and I don't really believe that the Ways and Means Committee is uh, in a position to make those sorts of judgments given uh, the expertise of the members and staff of that committee. In principle, all capital expenses should be deductible in the year in which they are incurred. That's usually called expensing. The various capital cost recovery provisions that the committee is considering are highly targeted provisions that would shorten recovery periods or provide for expensing for narrow interest. Although there's no particular reason to believe that the current asset depreciation range system originally adopted in 1971, when uh, we, President Nixon was in office, uh, are correct in every respect, those seeking changes to the capital cost recovery rules should be held to a high standard of evidence to show that the ADR system, which is the basis for ACRS and now modified ACRS, uh, got it wrong. Now, a tax deduction should be allowed for any outlay made for the purposes of earning future income. For that reason, 
the provision the committee is considering that would allow a deduction for tuition expenditures has a sound policy rationale and maybe a little bit different than most of the other things that they're considering. Lastly, let me just mention that a well-designed tax system in general should treat similarly situated taxpayers in a similar fashion. Those with the same level of consumption or income should pay roughly the same tax. This concept is sometimes called horizontal equity. Now, tax preferences or loopholes that violate this principle or do violate this principle are one of the central reasons that the tax system is considered so unfair. And Congress should keep this principle in mind as it deliberates. Now, let me introduce our three panelists. Stephen Enton is a senior fellow at the Tax Foundation to my immediate left. He was previously president of the Institute for Research on the Economics of Taxation and uh, also has served uh, on the National Commission on Economic Growth and Tax Reform, sometimes called the Kemp Commission. He assisted in drafting the commission's report and was author of several of its support documents. He is also former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy at the Department of Treasury during the Reagan administration, where he played a key role in a number of important legislative uh, developments, including the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981. Uh, Steve is a graduate of Dartmouth College and received his graduate training in economics at the University of Chicago. I uh, would also just like to say that in my view, Steve is one of the most capable tax policy analysts in the country, and any of you that are seeking tax policy advice could do no better than to touch base with Steve. Um, Richard Phillips is a senior policy analyst at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. He joined ITEP in 2002 and was promoted to his current position in 2015. He works on a wide range of federal tax policy issues with a focus on corporate tax policy and refundable credits. He has a bachelor's degree in political science and interdisciplinary studies, communications, law, economics, and government, and a master's degree in public policy from American University. Adam Michelle is a policy analyst here at the Heritage Foundation. Prior to joining Heritage, he was a program manager for spending and budget initiatives at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He has also worked as a research associate at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He has received a master's in economics from George Mason and also has a BA from Whitman College in Washington State. He is currently pursuing his PhD in economics from George Mason. The way we're going to work this event is each of the panelists will present for approximately 10 minutes, and then we will have audience Q&A. Uh, panelists can either uh, speak from the dais or, or the podium. Uh, Steve, it's up to you. I'll stay here. Save about 15 seconds. <clears throat> thank you, David, and thank you all for coming. Uh, we have just been through a substantial tax reform effort aimed at increasing growth, uh, raising investment, uh, increasing wages and employment, and it was a tough slog. Uh, it had to be scaled back to meet revenue targets and deficit restrictions, particularly uh, in the Senate, uh, and as a consequence, the bill fell <clears throat> short of many worthy goals and key growth provisions remain temporary. Here we have a list of provisions, most of whose revenue would be better employed making the growth elements of the tax reform bill permanent. In particular, the projected cost of restoring the provisions would cover a large part of the short-run transition cost of making the expensing provision in the recent tax bill permanent, and that step would do far more for growth and job creation at no long-run cost to the budget uh, than the expired provisions. The specific issues supposedly addressed by these provisions are, in my view, either overblown or so poorly addressed by the provisions that the arguments verge on the ludicrous. The provisions are well documented in the Joint Tax Committee paper, uh, Federal Tax Provisions Expired in 2017. Uh, they prepared this for a March 14th hearing on the issues, and it's available at jct.gov. <clears throat> David Burton's testimony at the hearing gives a fine analysis of the shortcomings 
of most of the items on the list, and it's uh, available uh, on the Heritage website. The provisions fall into three categories, energy, cost recovery, and miscellaneous, with some overlap. The energy credits and deductions are granted to highly specific alternative energy sources and are very distorting. Uh, by that, I mean that they uh, favor uneconomical forms of energy production over lower-cost sources. Some provisions are rationalized as correcting a market failure, such as the failure of market prices to take account of third-party damages from production or consumption, such as with air pollution, or perhaps the impact of carbon emissions on global warming. In other cases, the rationale is to foster energy independence. In the case of the supposed externalities, uh, the provisions are so far removed from a direct assault on the problems cited as to be nearly useless and are amount to special interest subsidization. In the energy independence area, they are rendered moot by the enormous unanticipated increase in domestic energy production uh, due to the fracking revolution in natural gas and the surge in oil output in the United States in recent decades. None of the alternative energy sources rival these changes in magnitude. The externality argument is often used to justify bad tax policy. To counter an externality, one must first be able to identify and measure the harm done and then design a tax or fee that correctly exposes the producer or the consumer to the missing cost. The harm must be measured net of any associated benefits, and the timing of the costs and the benefits must be taken into account applying an appropriate discount rate. Spending a billion dollars today to counter a current cost of a billion dollars is break-even. Spending a billion dollars today to counter a billion dollar cost 40 or 50 years from now is not a good idea. The cost-benefit analysis uh, in these areas is almost never done. In fact, it's almost never possible. The Congress is certainly not capable of coming up with these calculations on its own, and those who purport to do them are often more interested in the subsidy than in the economic benefits to the nation. If carbon is the issue, the direct approach would be to tax carbon, not to subsidize one or two of perhaps hundreds of alternative methods of generating energy, where the Congress has no idea which of the alternatives is more or less economical and which may have problems of their own. Uh, witness, uh, or perhaps don't look, it's ugly, at the thousands of birds slaughtered each year by their encounter with wind turbines. Well, giving a tax credit to homeowners to install more efficient windows and insulation is on the list, but I find it outrageous. The savings from the improvements may be large, uh, but accrue to the homeowner, not society at large. And the spillover effects, uh, spillover benefits, are far less than the tax burden on the rest of the population. Uh, one provision, uh, the Energy Efficient Commercial Building Deduction, uh, gives an extra deduction for efficient buildings to the business buying the building, but as the JCT points out, if the buyer is a government which is non-taxable and cannot use the credit, the credit goes to the, quote, person primarily responsible for designing the property in lieu of the owner, unquote. I presume that's the architect, uh, <clears throat> but when you read government reports, you kind of have to translate it into plain English. Uh, now, is the architect's recommendation for the building design in the best interest of the town or school district, uh, or uh, given, you know, given their budget constraints and their preferences, or is it in the architect's best interest? I don't know. It seems to me one could uh, make the case that one might occasionally run into a conflict of interest. Distorting production often leads to additional economic losses. Suppose a subsidy for biomass production leads to the non-construction of a nuclear power plant, which is carbon-free, instead of the closing of a coal-fired plant, which is carbon-intensive. Suppose the subsidies lead to more energy consumption, rather than a scaling back of production in the offending sectors. Suppose the alternative sources have their own pollution issues, aside from carbon emissions. It's very difficult to do all of these calculations and uh, make sure you're doing the right thing. Let's look at the cost recovery elements in this list. In many cases, the expired energy provisions allow for the expensing or faster write-off of alternative energy assets than they're normally given under current law, uh, under regular law. Uh, some of the expired provisions that are aimed at economic development in depressed areas also provide for faster cost recovery. Now, these include tax relief for investment in Indian reservations, where asset lives are about a third shorter than for the rest of the country, but exclude gaming property, and a credit for Indian coal and uh, nationwide faster write-offs for essential uh, uh, items such as racehorses and race car tracks. Uh, now, look, expensing is good tax policy, uh, but it should be applied to everything, not just some special areas. Uh, you get your distortions if you are picky like that. 
The new tax bill allows expensing for equipment, although only for about five years before it phases out. Uh, now, uh, expensing would make some of these tax provisions moot. Um, an example is the expensing of mine safety equipment. Uh, but in some cases, the favored write-offs apply to structures which do not get expensing under the new tax law. But the right approach is to extend faster depreciation to all structures, not just to a favored few. That would maximize jobs, output, and wages, and not merely redirect labor and capital from efficient uses to inefficient uses. Other provisions, such as expensing of certain qualified film and television and live theatrical productions, sometimes limited to depressed areas, resemble community development grants. Uh, if they merit a subsidy, and it is hard to see how such transitory activities create permanent jobs in the affected areas, it should be on the outlay side of the budget, not a tax break. Uh, of course, one could counter that we would not be seeing so many shows set in Chicago without the Illinois tax breaks that are being granted. Uh, Chicago PD, Chicago Fire, Chicago Med, I happen to like all of them. Uh, but how many of the actors and production staff live in the city? Then we get to the miscellaneous provisions. Uh, some provisions give credits, uh, other than faster cost recovery, uh, to improve the economies of depressed areas. These include the Indian Employment Tax Credit, the American Samoa Economic Development Credit, and Empowerment Zones, which are a sort of an update uh, of the Enterprise Zones of the 1980s. Now, depressed areas are better helped by addressing the real issues affecting them. American Samoa, like Puerto Rico and other island territories, and even Alaska and Hawaii, are especially crippled by the Jones Act that requires the use of expensive American ships instead of international shipping companies. Also damaging are the application of U.S. minimum wage rules and environmental rules in areas that may not be able to afford them. To a certain extent, these are luxuries. The territories are taxed as if they were foreign nations. Uh, under prior law, but when U.S. Firm, uh, when U.S. firms repatriated profits from these areas, they were hit with the higher U.S. tax rates because we had a global rather than a territorial tax system. Now, this limited the extent to which the territories can attract capital from the mainland by offering lower tax rates, and it is the lack of capital plus their geographic location uh, that holds them back. The new tax bill ceases to impose a high U.S. tax rate on earnings from abroad, uh, so it should provide the territories more flexibility uh, to do what's best for themselves. However, U.S.-based companies must avoid becoming subject to the BEAT anti-profit-shifting anti provision of the new act or the guilty minimum tax on supernormal profits, uh, often on intellectual property that is located abroad. Uh, <clears throat> so we'll have to see how this plays out. But it does render some of these specific credits a little bit less necessary. I have great sympathy for the territories. I have great sympathy for the Indian reservations. We are, with other federal policies, making it harder for them to get ahead. I'm not sure these are the right ways of handling that, uh, but uh, the, uh, it's something to think about. Now, uh, many of the same minimum wage and regulatory issues that apply to the territories do apply to the Indian reservations, uh, but they also suffer from the lack of individual ownership of many tribal assets. Structural reforms are in order, and the palliative employment tax credit does not address the source of low wages or the heavy burden of the payroll tax and health benefits in relation to the wages paid in those locations. The credit for maintaining railroad tracks and other railroad structures would better be subsumed into improved tax treatment of all structures. The mine rescue team training credit is in addition to the expensing of the labor costs involved in the training. I'm not quite sure why they're in there. <coughs> Tuition is a cost of earning future income and perhaps ought to be expensed. This provision is in the same issue area that is supposedly addressed by the American Opportunity Credit and the Lifetime Learning Credit. It would be good policy to combine them in all one simple deduction for tuition. And when you read these things quickly, and if you go through the JCT report after a couple of cocktails, or if you live in Colorado, maybe a couple of puffs, and you read it pretty quickly, you're going to end up either laughing or crying by the time you get to the end of it. It's a very good document, but you wonder why all of these things are in there. Uh, let's take a look at the second generation biofuel credit. <clears throat> which was formerly known as the Cellulosic Biofuel Producer Credit. It provides for a dollar and one cent, not just a dollar, a dollar and one cent per gallon income tax credit, non-refundable, for the qualified second-generation biofuel. The provision was enacted as part of the Heartland Habitat Harvest and Horticultural Act of 2008. 4-H. 
but don't confuse it with the Farm Club. The Healthcare and Education Reconciliation Act of 2010 amended the cellulosic biofuel production credit to exclude fuels exceeding certain water and or sediment content, such as black liquor. Uh, that's the waste product from creating pulp, and apparently it's nasty stuff. And when it got a credit, people were creating too much waste and not enough pulp. Uh, so anyway, that's not in there anymore. In addition, the Creating Small Business Jobs Act of 2010 amended the provision to exclude certain fuels exceeding certain acidity levels, such as crude tall oil, which apparently isn't as nice as refined short oil. The American Tax Relief Act of 2012 renamed the credit the second generation biofuel producer credit and added algae, cyanobacteria, and lemna as qualifying feedstocks. Now, I know you were all asked to turn off your cell phones so you can't look it up. Does anybody here know what lemna is? No? I'm sure you've all waded through it at some time when you went to camp as a child. Uh, it's uh, the common duckweed. Uh, now, the common duckweed uh, uh, and these others are defined as qualifying feedstocks. Well, of course it is. Ducks love to eat it. But apparently it is also good for making biofuel. Now, I can't help wondering, uh, since algae, uh, of course, overwhelms lakes and decays and takes all the oxygen out and kills all the fish, we have programs to get rid of that, and there are some marvelous new uh, means of, of doing so uh, that uh, uh, take it and... and burn it properly and, and all the rest. And we have new filters that are coming on this if you suck up the phosphorus so you can't get the algae. But can you picture it? You have a credit and over here you have a biomass company that's trying to grow algae and over here you have another company that's trying to put filters in the water to keep it from happening so that the fish don't get killed. Can't you just see it? It's a dark night, no moon, and, and the biofuel people are sending their security people out in a boat in dark hoodies with muffled oars to row across the lake to, to clip the lines on the filters that are keeping the phosphorus from... I mean, you got you got you got to laugh at it, um, and you'll be glad to know that the credit for electricity from renewable sources has been extended to include plants that use poultry waste. So uh, we're we're in on this up into the weeds, uh, and uh, I just can't help but thinking that there are better ways to run a railroad. Thank you. Or taxes. Or taxes. Richard. Right. All right. Um, first, just I'm really happy to be here, and, and thanks a lot for having me. I think there, there's. A lot of issues that conservatives and progressives don't necessarily agree on, but I think going after a lot of these special interest tax breaks happens to be one of them, so I'm, I'm glad that, to be here today. Um, and Well, first I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about what, what ITEP is and what we do. Um, we're a nonpartisan research and advocacy organization. We work at the state and federal level, and probably I think what we're most known for and what we kind of have the new capacity to do is do distributional and, and scores of, of tax plans, both at the national level, which several groups can do, but also at the state level. So if you've seen distributional numbers, for example, most recently in Kentucky or Oklahoma, a lot of those are coming from our microsimulation. Um, so turning, uh, so I think uh, Stephen took us really into the, the weeds of things, and I'm going to kind of take a step back and take us back into the more of the big picture thing. And so I think... You know, we've already gone over what a lot of these tax incentives are, so I kind of wanted to start with, well, why do they exist in the first place? Why do lawmakers politically choose to create a bunch of temporary tax provisions in the code? I think there's really two clear reasons for this. One, I think it's to hide the fiscal costs, is that they want to pass a lot of these different tax breaks, but doing so a year at a time helps them somehow convince people that this is not fiscally irresponsible. And so just taking the ones that we're talking about today, is in 2018, they cost just about $4.2 billion. So $4.2 billion is enough that you could probably make an excuse to put it in the deficit or even come up with some kind of gimmick, say, sell money from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and, and pay for it. But, but as has already been noted, over 10 years, it's $92 billion, and that starts adding up. And, and, and over the years, there's been a lot more tax extenders. And as this package gets passed year after year, more and more provisions get, get put on there. And so that $92 billion could end up being hundreds of billions of dollars if it continues as it's going. And I think a perfect example of how this kind of really changes the baseline is the research credit was originally passed in 1981, and then it kept getting sort of renewed year after year after year. And only a couple of years ago, after decades of continual renewal and decades of it not really being considered part of the baseline, was it finally put, in, put into effect. So I think that just shows we really need to do these things. And then I think the other big thing is that it creates this really problematic and what I call a symbiotic relationship between special interest lobbyists and lawmakers. And, and my old boss, Bob McIntyre used to call this the Tax Lobbyist Full Employment Act. And the reason is, is because 
if this is passed year after year, it means that tax lobbyists and the supporters of these have to go back year after year. And, and for, on some level, in terms of their employment, it's actually better for them if they have to keep doing this on and on. And f even for lawmakers, it's better not to make them permanent because it means that each year they get to say, we, you know, we fought really hard for this industry. We re fought really hard for this person. And, and you know, we, we passed it. And it's a shame we couldn't make it permanent. But, you know, at least we got it for another year. And I think a, kind of a perfect example of how these special interest pieces can actually have, are really kind of a bipartisan problem, is two of the provisions in this set that we're talking about. One is the, the tax break for racehorses, I think is highly associated with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who happens to be from Kentucky, which has a lot of racehorses. And also, on the other side, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is highly associated with the, the tax break for live theater productions. He's got Broadway and a lot of other things. So I think this is really a bipartisan problem where people are promoting their local interests. This right there we go, and so just kind of again taking a step back is, is here's the framework that we really think about when looking at these these tax expenditures and also just tax expenditures in general. I think the first question you have to ask is does this tax provision serve a compelling public interest? And it's striking looking at these provisions that many of them don't even pass a basic smell test. Is a tax break for racehorses really a broad public interest? I think it's pretty easy to straightforwardly say no. And then if you do think that it serves a compelling public interest, is it doing so in a cost-effective way? And the one that I always use as an example here is in empowerment zones, I think, um, have a really good idea behind them. The idea is to help areas that need help developing and, and sort of driving investment to them. But study after study has shown that this is not a particularly effective way to do so. And it actually often um, is just a windfall to those investors not really promoting much. And so if it, uh, if it passes these two tests, I think another test you really need is how should this provision be paid for? I think given our, our $12 trillion deficit looking forward, and CBO just had new numbers on this that are really not looking good, that, that you really can't continuously pass these tax cuts um, and, and, and ignore their costs. So if it's good enough to be in the tax code, it's good enough to be paid for and not just kind of ignored year after year. All right. So I think that the, the kind of bigger picture solution that we, that we need to look at is how do we bring permanency to the tax code. And I, and I think there's kind of three areas that I've been thinking a lot about when it, when it comes to this. Is first is the 28 uh, tax extenders that we've been talking about. And, and I think that, you know, like has already been discussed, the first big step would be to, to have a cost-benefit analysis of each of these, whether it's performed by the General County Office or the, uh, the Congressional Research Service or others. I think we need to go through each one of these and really dig into them. And I think a lot of them, it will become really obvious that they should be allowed to expire others that, that should be kept, and that we should just finally perform this analysis, and, and if they are good ones, then we should pay for them. I think the second thing that I, I wanted to note was just that there are other additional leftover extenders. There, there's, as part of the PATH Act a few years ago, some of them were extended five years. So there was these sort of set that we're talking about now, but then there's others that were there. So I think we need to apply the same evaluation to many of those. The, the two in particular that, that I don't particularly like that, that I think should remain expired are the CFC look-through rule and also the new markets tax credit, both of which I think um, really don't provide much benefit. In the case of the CFC look-through rule, I actually think that it promotes international tax avoidance, which is something that, that we don't uh, shouldn't really support. And then another thing I wanted to kind of throw in in this section is, is that I think it's you got to talk about not only the provisions that are expiring, but in many cases, the provisions that haven't been allowed to go into effect. I think I was reading the CBO report again, and I was really struck by the fact that the health care taxes haven't been, that haven't been allowed to go into effect are actually a pretty big chunk of change, hundreds of billions of dollars. And I, I'm personally not the biggest fan of, of the structures of those taxes, but I think that you either need to let them go into effect and have people pay them, or you need to pay for pay for getting rid of them. And I think that this continuous process of kicking them a year, kicking them a couple years, um, should no longer be allowed to go into effect. And then I think the last thing that we need to talk about, which is kind of the elephant in the room when it comes to permanency in the tax code, is the temporary provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And I think that um, you know, one, one, one really big disappointment in, in looking at the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is that, that lawmakers for years, and when they passed the PATH Act, a few years ago, they said, well, this is the last time we're ever going to deal with extenders. This is the last time, you know, there'll be no more extenders. And they didn't really meet what I kind of saw as a minimum standard of tax reform. Like, I had a lot of other issues with the bill. But to me, one of the minimum standards should have been dealing with all these individual provisions. And, and I was struck that they didn't do that. And then also, they created a lot more temporary provisions, which, which I think is, is a real problem and creates a lot of uncertainty in the code. 
And I also think just from a bigger picture perspective on permanency, I also don't think that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is um, particularly sustainable. And I think that, 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 so the solution for many is, we'll make all the provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act permanent. And I think that that really misses the picture that it's not sustainable because we have such a large debt coming out and, may, and, and putting all of these provisions into effect permanently would cost hundreds of billions of dollars more. I mean, the CBO says we're facing this $12 trillion deficit, and I don't think we can pile hundreds of billions of dollars of additional tax cuts on top of that. So I think that in order to create a real permanent tax code, we'll need to uh, roll back some of the provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and also go after a lot of other tax expenditures. I think there's actually even a way to do this in a way that doesn't involve raising rates really high in, in ways that, that I know the Tax Foundation and others would like. I think we could go after a lot of these tax expenditures, raise the revenue we need, and, and create a much more sustainable tax code. And so I think just to, to kind of reiterate, the three kind of t key takeaways I want to say here is, first, I think it is a critical first step to, to end the tax extenders tradition. I think it's been really poisonous to the tax policymaking process, and it needs to end. I think, two, that real permanence in the tax code will require raising substantially more revenue and rolling back portions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And finally, any tax expenditure, whether it's one of these tax extenders or, or not, should be um, subject to a careful cost-benefit analysis. And that's all I got. And so feel free to ask any questions or to check out more of our work. Thank you, Richard. Uh, Adam. Yeah, thank you, guys. Uh, so I'm going to, again, sort of take a step back and hopefully summarize some of the things that have already been said and put them in maybe a slightly different uh, a different lens. I, I guess first I want to start with this idea of temporary tax policy in general, which is really what we're talking about in the extenders, these things that are renewed over and over again, undermine a, a good tax code in, in three really fundamental ways. One, they increase complexity. They keep our tax code from being simple. Each of these little provisions that are inserted into the tax code have different phase outs as Steve was explaining they have all these complicated rules who can get them who can't uh, which which businesses qualify and then that changes year over year as lobbyists come in and and change the provisions each time they come back to Congress and ask for them to be renewed and so this this complexity that that is just sort of that is rampant through the tax code is just made worse with the temporary nature of, of the tax extenders they also undermine the efficiency of the tax code. Uh, David started the presentation talking about a tax code should raise the limited revenue we need for the constitutional functions of the government, and it should do so efficiently without distorting markets or making the economic decision-making uh, more costly. And, and so the, these temporary provisions uh, do this in several ways. One, when a provision is only in the tax code for a year or two, it's not really... Uh, an effective way of changing a business's calculation decisions. Even if we, even if it, something passes the cost-benefit uh, test, if I'm a business and I'm deciding whether or not to invest in uh, in a new production facility, and the tax credit is only there for a year, and there's uncertainty beyond that, I'm not going to actually invest in that in the same way I would if I knew it was was permanent. And so the the, the sort of ongoing uncertainty that these create undermines further undermines any efficiency, any benefit that someone may claim exists in these provisions. And then they also pick winners and losers, that if, if I'm an energy production company and a tax credit is making one form of energy production uh, a better option than the other, that's not a good, that's not the way our co economy should be operating. We should be, businesses should be picking uh, the most efficient way to produce en energy based on market demand and the relative scarcity of various resources and not what uh, Washington wants to wants them to invest in. The, the third way that they undermine the, the sort of a, a good broad-based tax code is that they make the tax code less predictable. Uh, every year, this recurring ritual of extending these provisions, uh, it undermines just the certain business certainty in what their future outlook is. And this keeps them from investing just in general. If, if we, we can, Steve and I agree that expensing is, a, is, is the correct baseline and we should provide expensing for all businesses. But if it's, if it's on a temporary basis, I'm, I'm not going to increase my long run investment in, in, the, in, in racehorses, if you will. It, it just makes a, a temporary reallocation to that that activity, and then bounces back. There's no 
there's no real sustainable change in, in the business activity. And, and businesses also, under this uncertainty condition, divert a lot of resources away from investing to away from investing in productive activities and towards investing in political activities. The, uh, the, Richard talked about this political machine of it's better to have t uh, temporary provisions because my, I get my lobbyist check every every year. That that money could be spent on creating jobs or, or increasing a, a factory floor, a new innovative technology. But instead, it comes to Washington to lobby your congressman to keep these things going year after year after year. And so this is a, uh, an additional inefficiency of, of, the, of these temporary provisions. So more broadly, the concept of, of tax expenditures, which Steve touched on, is can sort of breed confusion. There's, uh, as I think Steve laid out really well, is there's differences between expensing and, and so these uh, provisions that are moving our tax code in a direction that is, uh, that is that removes biases against savings and investment, that makes the tax code simpler. And then there's, and then there's tax targeted tax credits, which are a majority of the provisions in the in the extenders package, and and so I think it's it's important to put those in two different bucket buckets and focusing on the the sort of the special interest narrowly targeted tax credits, they they as as Richard was talking about obscure spending in a really sort of pernicious way. Think of uh, just. Walking through a, a quick example, if and this happened uh, more or less in the eighty in the eighty six reform, if if I'm a lawmaker and I want to uh, and I think that the government should be supporting low income housing, I can I can say, hey, we should reduce spending on low income housing and put a doll, uh, a tax credit in to support the provision of low income housing uh, that costs the same amount. So we're not changing the government support of low income housing, but as a policymaker, I can now say, look, I cut spending, and I gave people a tax cut. But in economic terms, nothing has actually happened. I've just moved spending from direct outlays into the tax code. And, that's, and that, that just obscures what, what's happening in Washington and makes policymaking that much more complex and, and that much more opaque to the, the general population. And then to end again in the same place uh, Richard did, there's uh, 26, 28 uh, provisions that are currently on the table that are expired uh, tax extenders. But the, the recent CBO report puts it at over 50 temporary tax provisions that are in the tax code overall. And those include some that are in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And, and so it's going to become increasingly important to make a distinction between those broad-based tax expenditures, lowering rates for average Americans, and, and expensing and the special interest provisions that are in the tax code. There's a two-year paid family leave credit and, uh, and various expansions of, of investment zones and, and then all the other tax expenditures that we normally think of. And so thinking through which of these are good tax policy that need to be extended and those that are indeed subsidies to special interests and getting rid of those subsidies, special interests, are going to be a, a challenge going forward and something that um, I think we can all agree is a, a good place to start with the sort of next round of tax reform. Thank you, Adam. Um, I'm going to ask one question, and then we'll move to audience questions. When we do, uh, when, when the audience asks questions, Please uh, state your name and your institutional affiliation before you ask the question. My question is, we've been using the term tax expenditures a number of times, and some people may not know what that term means, or, and also there are differing perspectives on what is and is not a tax expenditure, and I thought I might ask uh, each of you in turn, starting with Steve, to discuss for a second what a tax expenditure is per, and, and, perhaps, and your perspective on what is and is not a tax expenditure. The, the original concept of a tax expenditure was a, a sort of credit or a payment in the tax code that was so much like having done something through a, an outlay in a federal agency that it really should have been considered a spending uh, item. <clears throat> it later uh, got expanded to the concept of 
any tax break that was not generally available in the system and that you would not expect to find in a pure version of whatever tax system you were thinking of having. Uh, and the reason that's important, and, and David hinted at it, is <clears throat> depending on the tax system that you think of as normal, something can be a tax expenditure or not. Uh, for example, if you're in an income system, income tax system such as Professors Haig and Simon wanted to do, they wanted to tax saving and the returns on saving to help redistribute wealth. In a consumed income tax system, uh, we would tax either the saving when you first earned it uh, or the returns on it, but not both. And this is called a saving consumption neutral system or a consumption-based system. Uh, we are in the middle of the two. We have some saving that is tax-deferred, as in pensions and IRAs and 401ks, and some saving that gets the ordinary treatment. So whether or not you consider the lower tax on dividends and capital gains and the availability of pensions as a tax expenditure, if you're in favor of a pure income tax, or whether you regard these as negative tax expenditures because they don't go far enough uh, if you're favoring a consumption-based tax, depends on where you're trying to start. Then there are things that fall through the cracks on either kind of system, such as the exclusion of uh, employer-provided uh, health insurance, which would be considered a tax expenditure either in a consumption-based tax or in a pure income tax. So it depends on where, what you're thinking of as the basic tax system uh, tells you what is or is not a tax expenditure. Uh, I mean, I think that basically sums up most of it. I would just say that at ITEP, we're much more in favor of the pure income tax or the Higgs-Simons tax, and, and, and we see a lot of those sort of under a consumption thing that, that like expensing and the savings things as being expenditures. Yeah, again, Steve had a, has a great summary there. I think what, right now the problem is when JCT or OMB produces a report of tax expenditures, they're more or less using this income tax base. And if, despite disagreements of what the correct baseline should be, they should at least produce a reliable baseline against a consumption tax as well so that we have a, so, so, we can, so we can have the two different baselines and at least talk about the, the differences between the two rather than every time uh, the list comes out, we have to say, well, these are the good ones and these are the, the bad ones. It's, I think it, it would be useful to, uh, to have a process that, that gives us sort of both of those baselines so we, can, so we can better choose between them. In fact, they used to do that over at uh, OMB in the uh, early 2000s. I think the last year was 2008 or 2009. You can go to the budget of the United States special analysis, uh, uh, it's online, and get the chapter on what's a tax expenditure. And they went through tax expenditures under a pure income tax, tax expenditures under the mixed tax ex system we have now, which is sort of halfway in between, uh, and tax expenditures under a form of a consumption-based tax. Uh, I must warn you, it is incredibly dull. <laughs> Uh, but they actually did it against. Really interested. They did it against three. Well, some people are that way. Uh, <laughs> but they did it against three types of tax systems. Uh, even Hagen Simons thought taxing the corporation and the dividend was going too far. Uh, but the ordinary income tax assumes that you should. Well, anyway, uh, I would warn you if you do read it that the tax people at over at Treasury and OMBs were so confused as to whether an owner-occupied home was an investment or a consumption good that they totally botched the recording of what is and is not a tax expenditure in the housing sector. But other than that, it is a very good and very informative and very soporific chapter. Thank you. Uh, questions from the audience? Anything that people would like to That We do have a microphone, so uh, if... Again, if you could identify yourself and your institutional affiliation. Very good. Patrick Mackler and I work for Senator Ron Johnson. Um, Richard, I'm going to ask you in particular. Um, generally speaking, one imagines that progressives dislike the idea of companies lobbying for a tax break. It's a, it, it presents a threat of business-owning government, in a sense. Given the importance of expensing or excuse me, of uh, depreciation, cost, uh, cost recovery uh, mechanisms as a means of providing tax breaks. What is it that keeps progressivism in general, the left, from simply saying, screw it, we're going to go with, we will back ex full expensing because it knocks the legs out, out, out of a lot of 
tax breaks that we don't like? Sure. I mean, I think I think that there's kind of two pieces to the answer here. One, I think it's just how we conceptualize an income tax and, and how you measure income. And we see that that the way to measure income is to depreciate it by its economic value, and that's sort of the way you calculate income, and thus they should pay taxes on that. And full expensing would sort of put that completely out of whack. And I think there's also, especially right now, a second piece of which, which is expensing is very expensive. And, and although I've read many pieces by the Tax Foundation and I appreciate their work, we just don't think that this, this investment boost that, that is being advocated is, is really going to come to fruition. And we think that that's a little bit evidenced by the fact that, that the bonus depreciation we have right now hasn't created this massive surge of economic growth and, and that a lot of businesses right now through Section 179 actually have full expensing right now. And again, we haven't seen a huge boost from that. But I know that Steve's going to disagree with me about that. Uh, in a static revenue score where you don't take the growth into account, so let's even put that aside, uh, the expensing is generally a shift of a future write-off to the present write-off. So after you go over the hump of moving to expensing, you're back more or less with the same revenue stream as you started. And since the government has obviously lower borrowing costs in the private sector, you probably come out ahead uh, nationwide. Um, but uh, there is some effect of the uh, expensing on the cost of capital, and with a lower cost of capital, you do get more of it. Now, we've had expensing on more than off the last umpteen years, so we're already sort of there. If we, if we let it go away, you would see a depression of investment, and we'd be in an even slower growth situation than we have been over the last couple of decades, and wages would be even further impacted by a slower growth of productivity. So I, I think the, the revenue uh, estimate, even, even when you go with the joint tax, they don't show it as as terribly expensive once you're over the initial uh, cost of shifting to immediate write-offs as the old stuff is depreciated out that you're still carrying from the earlier system and got, get it out of the way. Um, they also show uh, much less cost of expensing than we do in our model. Apparently, they think that a lot of people still have huge uh, loss carryovers from the Great Recession and that uh, it would not cost very much to go to it now. So I think the sooner we go to it, the less it's going to cost in the static sense and the less trouble we'll have getting it extended in the Senate. Okay. Uh, other questions? Back here. Uh, David Wentworth, Taxpayers for Common Sense. Um, to some extent, all three of you, but again, particularly Richard, um, talked about the political, not imperatives, but the political incentives to have... Uh, tax expenditures, um, and I think all three of you said it would be a good thing to get, uh, sorry, extenders, to get rid of extenders, um, but how do you actually get from here to there politically? It's all fine and dandy to say there are political incentives to do this. We ought to have a systematic approach that gets rid of them, but I don't see how you run the politics to actually change the system. Neither do I. I mean, I mean, I guess my very practical step would be that that the members of Congress get uh, Congressional Research Service or the GAO to report, do a report on each of them, and they have more. I mean, they had one mega hearing, which uh, some of us were at uh, about them. But I think really just having a hearing where you go through each one and examine them piece by piece um, would be the the starting point, and then at the end of the year, take the results of that and and create a bill. And I think this type of conversation is a also a really good place to start. I mean, that we're that sort of left, right, center, every, most people agree that these are not, these are not a good thing to just continue on an ongoing basis. You can debate about the specifics of each one, but there's a pretty broad consensus. So I think it's trumpeting that. It's when there is that sort of consensus, at least my maybe idealistic hope is that it can overcome the sort of entrenched lobbying effort year over year. We saw that, I mean, for whatever you think of the research and development tax credit, it got taken off of that recurring uh, system and and made permanent. And I think that 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 move along with um, what we just saw through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there's hope that these big shifts can be made. And my hope would be that when a lot of the expiring pieces of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act come up, that presents another political opportunity to make the case that we need a permanent tax code that sort of does away with a lot of these um, recurring pieces. You have different groups represented here who come from different sides of things. We all agree on this issue. Uh, I think if you ever got a perfect tax system and explained why it was perfect, you'd still have a problem keeping it because the tendency would be to move away from it, to do a favor here and a favor there. So the public has to understand why a system is good to begin with and why moving away from it is bad and why the Congress shouldn't do this or that. 
And that means they have to, well, they have to read all our stuff, all right? And, but they, they also have to stay interested in government. This has to be a participatory democracy. Maybe you want to call it a Jeffersonian democracy. I don't know what you want to call it, but not one where you ignore the government until some horrendous piece of news comes over on Twitter. Uh, you, you've got to have people paying attention and wanting to be involved. So, oh, I just wanted to add one more thing, and I think just sort of more broadly, we should have we should be looking at tax expenditures every year. I mean, one thing I think has been holding us back a little bit is this search for the tax reform that covers everything. And what I would really love is for there to be an education tax break bill that where they just look at the whole smattering of education tax breaks, or look at housing ones, or look at just groups of them and really figure out how to fix them kind of piece by piece. And we haven't done much of that. I was just going to say the, your question raises an issue that is a central insight of the public choice school of economics, that when you have uh, narrow uh, interests uh, and narrow benefits, in this case, uh, that where a small group of people receive a large reward and then the costs are distributed among the entire public, there's not a financial interest on the part of the public where they might be paying a dollar you know, 300 million people pay a dollar each, and then a special interest of, you know, 10 companies gets the $300 million in the tax credit, you, you have a, a huge disparity in the political interest and the willingness to invest in the effort. Um, and that's a recurring problem. The only real way to address it is, in my judgment, twofold. One is uh, to create a countervailing political coalition that's more general, uh, and, and I think there's somewhat of an opportunity to do that here. I mean, obviously, progressives uh, are concerned about uh, the special interests and, and things uh, exploiting the system, but so are conservatives, and they, they use a different vocabulary. Uh, and so are sort of populist conservatives. And this is, 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 in effect, the swamp on steroids, right? And so... There's an interest to, on uh, the ability to get an interest, I think, in in uh, conservatives that are uh, Trump in nature, conservatives that are are sort of more market oriented, uh, and and or or classical liberals uh, view this as a a, a government interference in the economy. Progressives obviously have troubles with it because it's uh, powerful corporations generally exploiting the system. So you have all three sort of approaches to economic policy, and, and we may be able to create a, a political blowback in, in much the same way that the president did by referring to Washington as the swamp. Um, <clears throat> at least that would be my hope, that we, we can get all a sort of uh, conservatives and progressives uh, pushing in the same direction. But the, the core to that is, uh, creating an awareness among the public about what's going on, and that's part of the purpose of, of this event. Uh, alas, there's not a mass audience here. So, um, but we, 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 we have to, to keep trying. Anyone else have any questions? Well, thank you very much for coming. Uh, this concludes uh, our event.